we didn't know, how quickly the rest of the world would catch up and invest in digital initiatives we didn't know. We just knew it was going to happen. It's easy to be transparent when things are going well. It's a lot tougher when things aren't going the way that you'd like. We had to invest in more of an enterprise sales motion. And it wasn't you know, what we wanted to do at the beginning of the company, but it was kind of what the market gave us. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, I'm excited to welcome Karthik Rao. Karthik co-founded and served as CEO of SignalFX from inception in 2013, all the way through the company's $1.05 billion acquisition by Splunk last year in 2019. SignalFX was founded to help operators of modern distributed application platforms, real cloud monitoring, and observability. I'm excited to discuss the transition to cloud, DevOps, modern application development, and everything else given Karthik's position at SignalFX and now Splunk. Karthik has had the benefit of some history in technology. He joined LoudCloud out of Stanford, and many guests on this pod have mentioned the book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, to be a favorite. He's lived that story. Before spending six and a half years at VMware, which he joined in 2002, right as it was taking off, he ran product management and worldwide marketing at VMware and then served as VP products and engineering at Delphix before founding SignalFX. So Karthik's had quite a career in technology. I'm really looking forward to digging into Karthik's journey from the beginning of the dot-com boom to scaling SignalFX to nearly 300 employees across 10 countries, raising $178 million and ultimately getting acquired by Splunk for over $1 billion. Karthik, it's a pleasure to have you. Welcome to Founder Real Talk. Hi, Glenn. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you've been in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. You're almost as old as me. That's crazy. <laughs> you've obviously seen a bunch of change during that time frame. When did you realize that you wanted to start a company and build one yourself? I'm curious, like what the impetus was for starting SignalFX and what problem you were setting out to try to solve? Yeah, well, you know, I've been, as you said, I've been in the Valley for a while. I first came here uh, when I went to Stanford in the, in the mid-90s, in the middle of the dot-com boom. And it was hard not to get excited about building and creating products when you're surrounded by that kind of innovation in, in the early days of, of the web. So since then, I, I'd always felt that I wanted to go start a company. It was just a question of, you know, when is the right time? And is there an idea that I felt passionate enough about to, to go and do it? And that opportunity came about somewhat serendipitously. You know, I was looking for ways to start a company and didn't find anything I was excited enough about. And then the opportunity to start SignalFX really came to me when my co-founder approached me in late 2012. You know, Phil had been at Facebook for a number of years, along with several of the others that, you know, we started SignalFX with. And they had been responsible for building the monitoring and observability systems at Facebook. If you recall, you know, back in those days, Facebook was famous for its move fast and break things culture, which we joke, you know, today is kind of is DevOps, but back then they didn't really have a term for it. <laughs> yep. And it was the kind of culture where they really embrace speed and they, they designed all their systems to enable people to move quickly and just with, you know, small micro updates. And it was in that kind of a culture that our team was responsible for building the safety net, right? The monitoring system that would enable them to move quickly. And so when we got together in late 2012, you know, I spent a lot of time with Phil and the other folks that you know, he'd been working with at Facebook. And 
I realized that you know the world really needed a completely different way of thinking about monitoring as the world moved towards SaaS and, and web services, and it was very different from what the world you know the monitoring market had traditionally provided. You know, monitoring had become a lot less about running proprietary agents to give you visibility into key Oracle metrics, and it had become a lot more about collecting massive volumes of data and running analytics on that data as quickly as possible to find and surface important patterns. And that was kind of the crux of it. So we decided this is it. This is the opportunity. Let's let's go start a company. And uh, we incorporated in early 2013. Yeah. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about, we've seen so many companies that have succeeded when paradigms in computing shift, like new opportunities come. And it, it seems like in monitoring, you guys extended what monitoring really is to be more observability and thinking about analytics as kind of part and parcel to managing modern applications. Was this obvious to you on day one, or is this something that kind of evolved over time? That was the central thesis to the company from day one. The the fundamental shift was that in the past, the people who built software were different from the people who ran the software. You know, you'd have an IT organization running someone else's software. But as the world moved entirely to web services and SaaS, the people who build the software are the ones responsible for operating it. And that has a whole slew of downstream ramifications. And from everything to, you know, the rise of open source to kind of how people monitor and run their software. And so the central thesis was that in a world where developers are a lot more involved in running their own software or product organizations, not necessarily just developers, instrumentation or data collection becomes a lot easier and it just becomes a part of the runtime stack. And so if that's the case, you know, what's the value in monitoring? It's really in making sense of all that data very quickly. And so that was what we had seen at Facebook where, you know, their developers were doing all the instrumentation themselves. And so our team had really been responsible for just sorting through and processing massive volumes of data and surfacing the patterns in really interesting ways. And so the bet was that this is what's going to happen to the rest of the world. And so let's go start a company focusing on the problems that no one else is really focused on. Got it. So look, as you saw with LoudCloud earlier in your career in technology, they say that, you know, being too early is the same thing as being wrong (laughs) can really be lethal for a startup. So what gave you confidence? And I say this with there's a personal story here in that, you know, I met you a few times during early rounds and I, I didn't get it. And I remember you telling me the story, hey, like, you know, those that build software are going to be responsible for really running it. Therefore, they need, you know, we need to put the tools in their hands. And it was still the early days. And I'm sure you felt like a lot of people didn't get it up front, right? Nowadays, it seems obvious, but curious, like what gave you the confidence in 2013 to start the company, knowing that it was still very early days of DevOps and it was even pre the term DevOps, at least in its popular form. Yeah, you know, and and uh, in retrospect, back I think 2012 was the first year that AWS actually got to a billion dollars in error, and it was at the very end. And so they were still in kind of in its infancy. That was the scariest aspect of starting a company, not knowing if the timing was going to work out. Uh, you know, you have to be in that Goldilocks zone of, you know, the market hits not too early because you won't be ready for it. And, you know, not too late because you'll burn through all your funding and not, you know, not have a viable business. So I think we had to take a leap of faith. For us, we believed fundamentally that it was going to happen. Because if you look at 
the trends, right? The world was was moving towards software-based solutions. You know, the iPhone came out in 2007. At the time, there were a few hundred million people connected to the internet, and they were connected when they were sitting at their desktops. You know, today you've got over half the world's population connected online, and they're typically on mobile phones, smartphones. And the minutes of consumption of software in the internet is up exponentially. Now, whether that was going to happen in a few years or 10 years or 20 years, we didn't know. How quickly the rest of the world would catch up and invest in digital initiatives, we didn't know. We just knew it was going to happen. And so we we just took a chance. We needed to get a little bit lucky, and we believed that it was going to happen, and it was as good a bet as any, I think. Got it. And, you know, interestingly, we, we had been thinking about this. I was at VMware for a number of years, and we'd actually been thinking about this at VMware going back like 2004, 2005, and Diane Green was really great at this. She'd ask the question, what happens to VMware in a world where developers are running all of their applications in a SaaS role? You know, what's the role of a proprietary platform? Like, does everything move to open source? And so we were having some of those conversations, even kind of in my previous life at VMware. And so we felt it was an inevitability. It's just timing. It's hard to get right. Yeah, well, you know, you you persevered probably through some earlier tougher times, and I want to talk about fundraising in a minute, but obviously, you know, you emerged at just the right time. If you think about the earlier days at SignalFX, how did you, you know, find product market fit? It sounded like, I think you've, you've mentioned it was pretty noisy when you started. There were a lot of time series oriented data, monitoring oriented databases at the time, and, you know, it's probably difficult to rise above the noise. Did you do anything specific to try to make sure you were finding product market fit? And, and how did you feel confident that you were, you were getting there and making progress in that direction, maybe vis-a-vis all the competition that was out there? Yeah, it was a tremendously noisy space back then. As you said, I think there are over 10 players in our direct space. And, you know, to be honest, we struggled a bit coming out of our launch, and that was totally unexpected for us because we had some great beta customers and, you know, we closed almost all of our beta customers had almost a million dollars in ARR at the time that we'd launched. And then sales totally sputtered coming out of the Mm -hmm. gates. And what we realized was we'd built a really great monitoring platform. We had not built a great monitoring solution that was kind of an obvious solution to real customer pain points. And the product that we had was fantastic for people who had the imagination to know what to do with it. And that really was you know, a small subset of the market, you know, people who tried to build these solutions in the past coming out of Facebook or Google and such. And so what we had to do really to get to product market fit, I mean, it's focus, right? We just had to really focus to end. I'll talk about kind of four areas where we focus. So the first was focus on the right target customer until we could kind of get the product right so that we could target a broader market. The second was focusing on really what differentiates us with that set of target customers. The third was focusing on the right sales model to kind of get to some escape velocity. And then the fourth was focusing on what do we need to do in the product to expand the market to make sure that, you know, we we get broad product market fit. So on the target customers, we realized that, you know, we had to focus on the Facebook and Google expats, you know, the really large web scale players who understood what to do with a sophisticated time series metrics platform, because they appreciated all of the bells and whistles and the key elements of, of our technology stack. Now, it wasn't a very broad market at the time, but these were large accounts and they'd spent a fair bit of money on solving this problem. And so we had to just be laser beam focused. And that was very tough because you hire a sales team and you know they're, they're thinking very broadly, but you really have to focus in on qualifying for that target segment. 
The second thing is yet we really had to focus on what's different about our solution in that target segment. We had to make sure that we had our turf, places where we know we could go and we could win if we run our playbook. And that may not necessarily apply broadly, but to at least get to some escape velocity, it was critical. And so for us, the differentiation really was, you know, we had a streaming analytics platform, which was very kind of unusual at the time. People had just begun to think about streaming versus batch architectures. And so that allowed us to do a lot of things a lot more efficiently, a lot more quickly, you know, for the types of customers that we were targeting, like that was a, a hugely important differentiator. And so that was, you know, what's the key message that we needed to really reinforce to that particular segment. And the third was being honest about what's the right sales model to go target those customers. You know, at the time, you know, we we're in the DevOps market, everyone in the DevOps market's doing bottoms up, you know, freemium, land and expand. And that just wasn't going to work for us when we were targeting a handful of really big accounts where you need multi-million dollar deals. And so we had to invest in more of an enterprise sales motion. And it wasn't, you know, what we wanted to do at the beginning of the company, but it was kind of what the market gave us. And so we had to invest more in more traditional heavyweight enterprise salespeople to go and, and do the big complex sale. And then the last was making sure that we focused on what we needed to do to broaden the market. And that's very difficult when you have a platform because you can literally do like a hundred different things. And we focused on let's build a true end-to-end -end infrastructure monitoring solution, right? Cloud infrastructure monitoring, that's where the money is. That's, there's a lot of pain points there. And, you know, there were some internal, like in, with engineering, like, hey, we do a lot of other stuff too. Why don't we message these other things or focus on these other things? And we just had to focus on cloud infrastructure monitoring. And once we got those capabilities out, then, you know, we had a much broader addressable market and it made it a lot easier. And in the meantime, we were focused on those other three things to keep the business going. So it was tough, but we got there. It's a great lesson, though. So many of our early stage companies that we work with directly at GGV or, or that we meet with struggle with like finding the ICP, that ideal customer profile. It sounds like you guys did as well. But when you found it, you really focused on it. You differentiated for it. And that, that helped you ultimately start to get some momentum and, and then build a business from there. That's right. You know, you, you got to keep funding the business while you're focusing on what you need to do. Uh, next, right? Yep. It's awesome. Building out your team while this is all going on, did you recruit out of Facebook? What was that like? Well, the the original group of engineers had come out of Facebook, but we couldn't, especially having a, you know, a founder who had come out of Facebook, we couldn't uh, pillage Facebook. And so, <laughs> you know, the first three or four people were out of Facebook, but then we had to recruit from other networks as well. Got it. Okay. I mean, obviously you built a, a very strong engineering team and you were on the cutting edge of things, then you got to layer in sales. And you guys hired Mark Cranny in 2017, and Mark's famous for his portrayal in The Hard Thing About Hard Things when he was at LoudCloud. Very hard-charging guy. I met him once with you. What was it like for you to, like, on the one hand, build an engineering team that is probably thinking very long-term, and you want them thinking long-term, and then layering in a sales culture that has to be thinking, you know, in kind of 90 day sprints. Um, curious, like how you manage those two things at the same time. Yeah, that's a very difficult problem, especially for any company that does enterprise selling, right? With big, big ticket deals. And it's a much easier problem to solve when your business is booming, because then, you know, your product organization has the confidence to, to just say no to sales and sales leadership has the confidence to 
say no to sales reps who bring in bad deals and just say qualify better. But it's a tough problem to solve when, you know, you're living paycheck to paycheck or a couple of big deals really can swing a quarter and you need to do a fundraise. And so it's a challenge. I think there were a few things here that were kind of really important for us to consider. The first is we had to draw very, very clear boundaries on what we would not do, you know, the red line. And for us, that was, you know, we're never going to be an on-prem solution. You know, there were customers that wanted on-prem, but, you know, we're 100% SaaS. We're very clear that we're not going to go and support old legacy data center environments. You know, when you're dealing with big enterprises, they ask, and in some cases they, they want it and it becomes a requirement. So we had to say no to those. And we had to be really good about not doing any product commitments that weren't leverageable across our broader customer base, right? So no PS style, build a custom UI for you. So we had to draw the line on those things. But then even if you draw the line there, there are lots of things that are going to come up in an enterprise deal that, you know, force you to trade off things that, you know, are really important. And for us, what really helped with that is we hired a fantastic EVP of engineering, Leonid Golnick, who was a great foil to Mark Cranny. You know, when you have a really, really strong go-to-market exec, you need a really strong operationally oriented engineering exec. Otherwise, that imbalance can result in a lot of problems. And Leonid was really great at coming in and building some lightweight frameworks and process and methodology around the kind of more innovation-driven engineering that we had. And so we were able to instrument our engineering processes very well. We had a ton of metrics around velocity and, you know, we had everything kind of built out in agile boards. And so effectively in, in real time, like during our executive staff meetings, like if there's a question about, we need to do this to get this particular deal it was very easy for Lena to say, okay, well, here's the implication of that. If we do this, then you're not going to get A, B, and C. And is that the better trade-off to make? And it forced Cranny to actually think like a CEO or a GM and not just say, I need this for this particular deal. But, you know, he understood the trade-offs. And my belief is, you know, senior executives, if you give them the data, are very responsible. And Cranny cared deeply about the business and its success. And so, when Leonid would present that to him that way, like he could give his input that, yes, this is way more important and it's worth kind of delaying this and the product team could give its opinion and I could chime in, but it gave us a framework to have those discussions. If we didn't have that, I don't know how we would have made some of those decisions. And so that's the second part. And then third part is you have to make sure that you ring fence the critical resources. If you've got critical projects that are important and non-urgent, you've got to make sure that you ring fence those so that you can still make progress. So that's kind of how we dealt with it, just the balance between engineering and, and go-to-market. I love the the idea of making sure you have strong execs to balance each other out and then introducing frameworks to help people understand and think and really speak about trade-offs in a kind of a non-political way, because sometimes, you know, when there's conflict, you can see challenges. Did you have to referee at all as CEO? Sometimes we see CEOs playing, having to play that role. And if so, you know, how did you manage that type of situation? You know, I didn't, I would facilitate the conversations, but I, I very rarely had to actually like make a a call to overrule one or the other. I think because we had a lot of the data, it was, we were able to to come to conclusions pretty quickly. You know, one of the things, you know, when I hired Mark, you mentioned Cranny and his hard charging nature, you know, he was a real game changer for us. I don't think we could have ever achieved the outcomes that we did, you know, without him. And he made me a far better CEO, you know, for, for those on the podcast who have, don't know about him, you know, he was an early sales exec at PTC, which is 
you know, legendary for their lineage of great enterprise sales executives, but, you know, they're also famous for their intense, you know, school of hard knocks style culture. So he, he brought kind of a level of intensity and systematic, you know, system-wide knowledge to the team that we didn't really have before. And he was a really great compliment to me because I have more of an academic style and how, you know, I think about problems and he was very execution oriented, no nonsense, put all your cards on the table type of an executive. And so it helped me realize what I needed to do to balance out my executive team. And so as we continue to build out the company, you know, hiring a, a VP of engineering like Leonid, who, you know, very similar in being very direct and being very data-driven, it just, I helped everyone think through things a lot more in a more nuanced way than I think they may have otherwise, but I had a very decisive group of executives. And so when the data was presented, generally, we, we got to conclusions very quickly. Got it. That's really great to hear. And also a lesson there sounds like it's, you know, if you have a particular style, don't be afraid to hire execs who have different styles. Just understand what those style, how those styles are going to mesh and, you know, be prepared for that. But it's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it can be a good thing to have that kind of variety in a company. A hundred percent. I think that was a great thing for us having balance on the executive team. Speaking of like balance, I'm curious, you, you've talked about culture and you, you said people in the company are always watching the trade-offs that like a CEO has to make. And, you know, rather than words on the wall, the actions really help dictate and help people understand what's important. Can you just give us an example, like from maybe a time at SignalFX where you needed to make a tough decision and, you know, that decision maybe helped solidify for your employees what was important at SignalFX, what the culture stood for? Yeah, you know, we had always strived as as a company to create a problem-solving culture. You know, we'd emphasize that, you know, setbacks are part of the startup experience. And Ben Horowitz had always coached me on, you know, running towards the darkness and not away from it. <laughs> and so we'd, we'd really try to emphasize that as a company in creating a problem-solving culture that, you know, no problem is unsolvable if we have the right attitude and we have all, all hands on deck and all eyes on the problem. And that's a difficult you know, like you just have to reinforce that every single day with every single decision and every single challenge that you face. And, you know, we, I mentioned we hit a rough spot after we launched and, you know, about a year after we launched, I had to lay off most of my sales team, do a small layoff. And then within a few months, we ended up doing a down round with our current investors since no one else would kind of touch us at the time because we hadn't really gotten to any escape velocity and those weren't the tough decisions because <laughs> we didn't really have any choice. The tough decisions really were, you know, how to communicate these actions to the company, how to involve them in the process of writing the ship. And it's easy to be transparent when things are going well. It's a lot tougher when things aren't going the way that you'd like. But we had to take the same approach that I'd encourage the team to take all along, which is, you know, treat everyone like adults share bad news very quickly and focus everyone on solving problems. And so during this period, we, we actually dialed up our transparency. After the layoff, I opened up our executive staff meeting to the entire company for about a year. So they could all listen in, not participate, but they could all just dial in and, and listen to the conversation just to show everyone that, you know, we weren't hiding anything. We followed that up with, you know, weekly town hall style all hands so that if anyone had any ideas or questions on the broader business, they could ask questions and participate. When we did the down round a few months later, you know, I was pretty transparent about it, opened, uh, it did a couple of sessions for the company where I walked through our capitalization structure, kind of all the terms of all of the rounds that we closed, you know, why it happened, what it means for the future, how we could avoid it. 
And, you know, the net effect of all of this was that we tried to treat everyone like business owners. And I feel like the team felt that they were part of, they were business owners and it focused everyone's energy on finding solutions versus worrying about what could go wrong or what they don't know. And it helped create, you know, reinforce, I should say, not even create, reinforce that entrepreneurial spirit within, especially our core engineering team. And I think of all the things that we did right at SignalFX, probably the one thing I'm most proud of is like that group stuck around with us through, you know, through all the ups and downs all the way through the acquisition. I love the idea of treating your employees, everyone like an owner. It elevates their feeling of status in the company and kind of imparts a responsibility and an accountability on people. But like the trade-off is they, they also feel really invested in the future of the company. I've seen this work at other companies. It's great to know that you guys did the same thing, but it sounds like it paid, paid real dividends. Yeah, That's great. How about your role? Did your role change over time as the company you know, evolved from stage to stage? I'm curious how you kind of evolved with it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I kind of divided into two periods. There was the pre-growth stage and then the growth stage. Pre-growth stage, I was basically just a, a hands-on individual contributor moving from function to function. You know, in the early days, it was more product management, you know, when we had largely an engineering team kind of helping frame, you know, what we needed to do on product. And then when we launched, it was more marketing. And then it ended up being sales because we ended up laying off the sales team and we hadn't gotten to product market fit and I had to run the sales team. And so for a while, I was basically running a small ragtag team of salespeople going out and doing deals and flying all over the world and country to, to get deals done. Then also add in GNA, basically being the full-time CFO and VP of HR and all of that, right? So it was just untenable. It was exhausting. But once we hired Mark Cranny. You know, he was a very, very, very seasoned executive. And I realized how I managed my execs had to change. And we started to hire on, you know, we hired a CFO, we hired a great VP of engineering, we hired a VP of HR, just CISO. We just hired a bunch of C-level people after Mark. And the key thing that I, I shifted to, it was great having a CFO pretty shortly after I hired Mark. I, I would recommend anyone, if you're getting a really senior go-to-market exec, you need to have a really strong finance exec along with them because what it allowed me to do is really give Mark a PL, you know, basically create the structure so that he had a budget on everything, right? Even equity for, for equity hires and focus on metrics. And so basically the decisions that I would sit down with him on would be funding, like how much do we need to invest, you know, the metrics that we would track, strategy, and then I would get involved in deal support, right? Or, or deal sponsorship. But the day-to-day -day around who he hired, how much he comped them, the comp plans, how much he split between marketing and sales because he also owned marketing, he owned all of that. And, you know, I give my opinions on a lot of stuff. I was very opinionated, but he was senior enough to tell me when I had bad opinions and push back on me. And I trusted <laughs> him enough to let him run with it. But ultimately, we focused more on, on the strategy and the results. And when you have senior execs, if you have the right structures elsewhere where you can discuss the business in a, in a healthy way, you know, they're very focused on getting results and outcomes. So that was how I managed Mark. And it taught me that was how I needed to manage my other senior execs. Uh, but you need to have execs that you trust, right? Who are experienced enough who know how to do this sort of thing. And so as we built up the executive team, I, I shifted more towards being a CEO versus being, you know, a, a functional chief in rotation across the different aspects of the business. That was a lot of fun. Cool. And, you know, that transition sounds very reminiscent of 
transitions I hear from other founders who've run successful companies have made. One of the things that your job doesn't change with is your responsibility to bring funds into the company. I'm sure you had some different types of fundraisers. You had a down round and inside <laughs> round. Those aren't fun. You, but you raised a hundred and almost $180 million over, over the course of several rounds. So you, you, you saw a lot of different types of environments, different types of rounds. What's like a piece of advice that you wish you could give yourself going back in time on fundraising or that you'd give to other founders just as, as they go out and raise money? Cause this is definitely a challenging part of the job for a lot of folks who are founding companies. Yeah. And it's a, no, no offense, Glenn. It was my least favorite part of the being a CEO and I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. But, I can't um, believe you'd say that. <laughs> I mean, investors are great. The fundraising process is a pain in the ass sometimes. So I think the big lesson learned for me was, I mean, fundraising is a sales process, just, just like doing a multi-million dollar deal at a fortune 500 customer. And if you think about it systematically, like you should be thinking about a sales process, you put yourself in a much better position for success, right? So all the classic, like, you know, medic from an enterprise sales methodology, you know, making sure that you're talking to the right person, the decision maker, understanding what the decision process is, understanding your buyer and the metrics that they use for measuring their own success. If you think through all of that stuff systematically, you put yourself in a much better position for success. Marketing, right? It, the fundraising process doesn't start with the fundraising process. You have to be marketing well ahead of that. And so think of it as a sales process and you put yourself in a much better position for success. The other thing, particularly as we got to later stages, was we knew what we were going to have to do in a, in a fundraise process, the kinds of metrics that investors were going to care about. And we tried to align how we ran the business as much as possible around some of those key metrics. So it wasn't, we wouldn't look at magic number and gross margin once every 18 months when we were fundraising, we, it would be a part of our normal operating cadence. We would have all the data readily available. And, and the flip side of that is, you know, two things. One, we could run a process on a dime if the market got hot and we had some inbound interest and we wanted to run a process. We had you know, all the data rooms ready and we have all the, the data and the, the decks ready. But on the other hand, it also helps you manage your execs a lot better because you're not picking at them for specific things. You're framing it in the context of this is what we need to do to operate the business. And if we don't get these metrics to these levels, it, it might be harder for us to raise money. And so it's just a much better way of managing senior execs in my experience. You almost use those things as a forcing function to help you kind of dictate what constraints you want you want your execs to live within. Yeah, exactly. Cool. I want to shift to like your decision to sell the company. Obviously, not many startups get to a place where they, they get to exit for over a billion dollars. So it's a pretty special air that you were breathing at that time. But you know, you you had the opportunity, I'm sure, to consider continuing to go and go longer with the company. Uh, you had built up a lot of momentum. Your team was was operating at a really high level. Uh, the market's really good, obviously. So for all the reasons that Splunk was excited about the future of and potential for SignalFX, I'm sure you were as well and your investors were. Tell us a little bit about the calculus and the conversations and process you went through to make this decision. Yeah. First, I'll say I was extremely fortunate to have a, a fantastic board. You know, they were extremely supportive, you know, from day one. They trusted me to run the business the way I saw fit, make key decisions, including decisions around, you know, do we sell the company or do we keep going? And they would have supported us either way if we decided to keep going independently or decided to sell the company. So, you know, for us, ultimately, you know, I, I would get asked this question even in the early days, you know, in recruiting people, like, do you want to 
sell the company? Do you want to go public? And my answer was always the same from the very beginning. It's like, we want to be the number one player. We want to win the market. We want to be as big as we possibly can. But I've been around long enough to know that things can change and I don't want to be dogmatic about it. And if the time ever comes where someone offers to buy the company, we'll kind of assess where we're at and talk to the people who really, you know, are team and and then make the right decision for all of the stakeholders. So for us, for me especially, there were a few things that were very important. Number one, you know, we were in a great market, but we were behind. We we're kind of a distant number two player. And so the question was, do we have a better chance of becoming the number one player in this highly competitive large market going alone or pairing up with someone who would be an acquirer? The second question was, you know, will how do our employees feel about working at the, the acquire will they be excited will they be challenged and is it a good home for them and then third you know do we get an adequate financial outcome based on kind of everyone's expectations you know the board investors employees and and so on and so that's kind of those were the three key questions we we had interest before splunk so we had some of these conversations before but it just never felt like the right fit when splunk came along just given how the market was converging you know there was a lot of convergence in the market splunk had the combination of the right technical assets, the right people, the right culture for us to really catapult from the position we were in to really becoming the leader in the space. That's what most of the team was motivated by is like impact and the opportunity to be the winner in the space. And so that felt like a really compelling fit on the first item. The second item, we felt that, you know, the culture fit was great. Splunk was a smaller company. It's not like a hundred thousand person company. And so everyone could kind of slot in and, and feel like, you know, their actions were having impact on the business. Then third, we felt the financial outcome was, you know, at, at the price that they paid was a very healthy, good outcome. And in the grand scheme of things was the combination was the right combination for us to move forward. So when they came, you know, I I obviously had been thinking about it and I had an opinion, but got my execs together because I wanted to make sure, you know, I got their opinion and I wasn't smoking crack and kind of everyone was uniformly like, this is the right way to go and we should do it. And so I went back to the board and presented our opinion and they were hundred percent supportive and we decided to move ahead. Great. Well, I, I think I mentioned to you, I backed Doug Merritt, the current CEO of Splunk. I backed one of his <laughs> failed startups 20 plus years ago. So I've gotten to know Doug over the years. Jason Child, CFO, is also somebody I've gotten to know well over the years. So I, I know there's a lot of great execs over at Splunk, and I'm, I'm sure your future there is bright. Huge congrats on an incredible, not end to the story, but at least end to the independent life of the company. End of one chapter, on to the next. Yes, <laughs> on to the next. Yeah. So, Karthik, really amazing lessons that you've imparted in this episode. I want to end with a speed round. Okay. Put you on the hot seat and just say the first thing that comes to your mind. What's the best book or article that you recommend to other founders? I've got to give you two on this one, Glenn. So Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, fantastic oh, yeah. book. I had Love no idea one. how much he struggled and they struggled in the early days. And the other one, what you do is who you are. Got to give a nod to my board member, Ben Horowitz. It's a great guide to day-to-day decisions. Yeah, yeah. Those are two great ones. So thank you. Thank you for those. I love the shoe dog story. I'm, I've been a Nike shareholder for over 30 years and I thought I knew everything about Nike. And when I read Shoe Dog, I was just amazed at how much... Phil Knight had to go through to get to oh, the yeah. get to the other side. Really incredible story. What's a piece of advice you wish you'd received before you founded Signal FX? Now looking back, you know, I I think take time to enjoy the little things and enjoy the journey 
it's just easy to get caught up with everything. But I wish I spent a little bit more time to enjoy the little things. And yeah, that's my one. Enjoy the little things. Yes. (laughs) One thing I tell founders is make sure to take pictures. Yeah, I know. That's the other thing. I I wish we had more photos too, you know? (laughs) It's like, it's like your kids. You need more Mm -hmm. photos. Okay. Last question. Your favorite tennis player and why? And and our uh, listeners should should know that Karthik and I have been out in the tennis court several times, and he's quite a good player. That's very generous. Thanks, but <laughs> I love Rafa. I just love his attitude. It, the whole leave everything on the court and then be at peace with whatever the outcomes are. I think you can't think of a better lesson for the entrepreneurial journey, and I, I just love Rafa and his attitude. Well, I can say that you as CEO and founder really left it all out on the table and uh, <laughs> signal fx is was the is and was the better for it karthik thanks so much for spending time with us this has been an amazing episode with tons of wisdom that i know people are going to enjoy congrats again on closing the first chapter of the signal fx journey and looking forward to hearing more about how it goes from here thanks glenn great to be here you've been listening to founder real talk if you like what you heard Please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages 6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at at ggvcapital or ggvcapital on WeChat.